you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for joining us. June 15th, that's a week from today, not only marks the big reopening of California, it's also the deadline for lawmakers to pass the budget. Now, right now it's being hashed out in Sacramento. And last week, a group of Democratic senators threw a few additional proposals into the mix to help make home ownership more affordable and attainable for all. The ultimate goal being to reduce the growing wealth gap in the state that has hurt mostly residents of color. Now, for more on that gap and whether policies laid out in the California Dream for All plan can actually help, we turn to Andre Perry, senior fellow with the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program. He's also author of uh, Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. Andre, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Sure, sure. All right, just to set a baseline, can you break down the numbers on home ownership in the U.S.? Uh, black home ownership versus Latino versus white. Yeah, we in, in California, you generally see about seventy-five percent of white homeowners owning their their homes, compared to about um, um, forty to thirty-nine percent for blacks, about forty-three percent for Latinos. Um, it's a it's a big gap, and, it, and it's accentuated um, in particular areas of California. So when you're talking about um, the the Bay, it, it worsens. Um, when you're talking about Los Angeles County, it's it's heightened. And so, but overall, there's a big discrepancy between Black, Latinos, and whites. Does California look generally like the rest of the nation on that? Oh yeah, it it generally mirrors the rest of the country. the di- The difference is, it is a lot harder to get into the housing market in California. Many people know um, it's it's simply out of reach. Um, to you know, in in home average home prices can can be well over four hundred, five hundred thousand um, dollars. Certainly in the Bay, it can be uh, higher than that. And so if you are working as a teacher, it can be very difficult to own a home, to, to own a home in the area in which you work. And so that's why um, states and local municipalities are really trying to figure out ways to, to support um, um, home ownership in during this time. Yeah, it's a really California home ownership, Andre, is like a being in line at a nightclub that you know you're never going to get into. You're just standing there waiting and hoping and and it uh, never happens. Now, here in L.A., there's uh, long been institutional barriers to home ownership for people of color and also for Jewish people as well that uh, kept them out of certain neighborhoods. But even after housing covenants were struck down in the 60s, they persisted. So, Andre, can you tell us a little bit about the key challenges that existed there? Yeah, and a lot of people have been bringing up this history um, certainly after the Tulsa massacre, we're learning a lot about um, the sordid racial history around redlining, around racial housing covenants, around um, antagonistic uh, communities and governments really trying to um, 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 reduce the uh, affordability to get rid of black people 
in these neighborhoods. And so we know that the federally backed homeowners loan corporation for years um, redlined areas. And then even in areas where there wasn't official redlining, there were these racial housing covenants. And, and remember, black and Jewish people generally lived together in a lot of these areas, and they were, you know, shunned um, from the rest of the community. And so they just made as, as conditions as difficult as possible, not allowing for refinancing loans, not allowing for down payment assistance. Um, and they were unable and black and Jewish people couldn't move in the other areas because yeah. of these racial housing covenants. So it really throttled um, wealth. And and for black people in particular, um, black people couldn't change their name. They couldn't move to other areas because all throughout the country, there were these racial covenants. And so um, you could move, but it would be like jumping out of the, the frying pan and into yeah. a fire in the in the fire. You know, you mentioned black and Jewish people living in, in the same neighborhoods. Uh, I, I, I never forget seeing pictures of uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers, Ebbets Field, back uh, in the 50s. Uh, and, and you'd see pictures of the crowd and they'd be black and Jewish people leaving the stadium but and, and walking back to their to their neighborhood right there in Brooklyn. So, yeah, th- that was one example of, of, of blacks and Jews working, actually living together in those same areas. Now, in the book, and that, you, you know, yeah. and- and people always forget about there. There is still this connection in terms of civil rights um, that really came about because black and Jewish people um, lived together, worked together, rallied together. And so, when we're talking about um, housing equity, um, you, you, this is a long history of black and Jewish people working together for justice um, around this issue. Now, in your book, you write about the, the uh, deliberate devaluation of black communities for those uh, black and brown families who do own homes. What has prevented those families from building the kind of wealth over the years that white homeowners have? Yeah, my research, um, we compared black neighborhoods to white neighborhoods where the share of the black population is 50 percent and compared those to areas where the black population is less than a percent. And we control for education, crime, walkability, all those fancy Zillow metrics. And we found that homes in black neighborhoods are underpriced about 23%, about 48,000 per home. Um, and uh, cumulatively, that's about 156 billion in lost equity. In, in Los Angeles, for instance, there's a 17% difference, about 70,000 per home. Now, um, there's a way to interpret my data that that when the people in the housing market and, in, and, and throughout other markets look at black neighborhoods, they see twice as much crime than there actually is. They see worse education than there actually is. The, the sort of um, pejorative perceptions of black neighborhood comes out of the wash in housing prices. So when it comes to getting a loan, when it comes to getting your house appraised, um, the, that subjectivity is is fraught with all kind of racial bias and it reduces the value of, of homes. And we, and, and we know that throughout the news, we've seen these horrible stories of black homeowners um, getting white stand-ins in order um, wow. to get a, a higher appraisal. And so we, we shouldn't have white saviors to get value on our homes because when you don't get value, what that essentially does, it's robbing you of tuition. 
is robbing yeah. you of the opportunity to start a business. It's a, it's a big deal. A quote unquote bad neighborhood, right? I mean, that's no one wants to buy in a bad neighborhood. That's the old uh, line there. We're talking to Andre Perry, the Brookings Institution, author of you Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. All right, let's, let's get to solutions. I mentioned up top this California Dream for All plan proposed by state lawmakers. Now, under the plan, the state would get a 45% ownership of a house, reducing the price for potential buyers by almost half. Uh, so, Andre, what do you think? I mean, is this the right approach to boosting home ownership and closing that uh, wealth gap? Yeah, I think there has to be some type of subs, uh, subsidizing of homes because because the black folks don't have the wealth and we uh, essentially are locked out of the job market in key areas, we simply don't have the buy, buying power. So you would like to see some type of subsidizing of, of, of home ownership. Remember during the 30s, the way that people built wealth was the, the federal government created it through the New Deal, created policies that would um, give families, not black ones, um, the um, low uh, refinancing loans, down payment assistance, and, and white families were able to buy homes, start new communities, build wealth. So we can do that same thing. The, 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 what's problematic with this policy is it, it looks as if the, the state is going to own half the home, so to speak. And we know that that's fraught with error because um, many municipalities and states essentially tried to rob pe black people of land in the past, yeah. take their homes through eminent domain and other, I mean, Bruce Beach in, in LA County, for instance, that was an example of what local and state municipalities have done in the past to, to steal land from black but people. But isn't, isn't 55% so, better than nothing? It opens a door, doesn't it? It gets a foot in a door. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I said, Hey, I, I want novel ideas. We, there needs to be some cooperative sort of program to enable low wealth individuals from, um, to buy homes. And so um, we should just watch carefully um, as this, what I consider it a reparative sort of policy, repairing the damage of past discrimination. And we can call it reparations. We can call it, you know, subsidies, whatever. But there needs to be some effort to enable a black or people who've been victimized by past policies to own a home. So it's, it's a novel idea. We should look at it carefully. Um, but you know, it's 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 a it's a step in the right direction. I could hear I could hear your arms folded, Andre. Like I don't know about it. Maybe. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. the government just has a sordid history with black people, yeah, yeah. and so we can't just take it for granted that this is a good thing. That's Andre Perry, the Brookings Institution, also author of Know Your Price: Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. Andre, thanks a lot. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, moving on. A California proposal to expand transitional kindergarten could reshape childcare and preschool for four-year-olds in the state. As KPCC's Mariana Dale reports, while some parents love the program, providers say it could hurt an industry that's already been battered by the pandemic. 
In an early transitional kindergarten class at Carver Elementary in Long Beach, four and five-year-olds are snapping together stacks of colorful cubes. Abram, you want to read us your pattern? Green, yellow, green, yellow, green, yellow, green. And what would be next in yours? A green. Teacher Christina Damon says the day is a mix of academics and play. I really approach everything as a way to build confidence and skills for future learning. After California moved the age cutoff for kindergarten to September 1st, all districts were required to offer transitional kindergarten, or TK, but only to kids with fifth birthdays between September and December of the current school year. Long Beach Unified and several other districts around town have already expanded TK to younger fours. That's how Jamie Torres was able to enroll her now eight-year-old daughter Lila and her son Abram, who's in Miss Damon's class this year. We could afford the private preschool, but it would come at a, at a great cost to the rest of our lives. The average tuition for a four-year-old in California is $956 a month. Torres, who's a former teacher, says aside from the savings, her kids have benefited socially and academically. My son Abram literally knew two letters when he went in, and he's coming out now with, I think he'll probably come out knowing all of his letters. Less than half of four-year-olds in the state are currently enrolled in a public preschool program like TK. Educators and advocates for kids and families have pushed for increased access to early childhood programs for years. Libby Soria is a professor of child development at Merced College in the Central Valley. We're all for getting children served and families served, but nervous about what it would look like in terms of quality. For example, state preschool is staffed with one adult for every eight children. Right now, transitional kindergarten classrooms can have one teacher for up to 33 kids. Governor Newsom has proposed reducing this ratio with additional funding. Then there are the hours. TK can go for as little as three hours, and it follows the school calendar. Nonprofit preschool administrator Andrea Fernandez says some parents in her program work long days in local factories. We have a lot of low-income families that work in the Fabrica downtown, and so... They need hours that are open at 6 o'clock so they can get there on time. She says the California Children's Academy, where she works, also offers extra services like mental health support for kids. Still, she says families might choose a TK program if it means getting to drop their younger and older kids off at the same school. Fewer four-year-olds at California Children's Academy would make it harder for the 50-year-old program to survive. Without those feet in the door, we're losing contract dollars. It's very hard to make that up. That's because the money the academy receives from the state to care for these four-year-olds helps offset the higher cost of caring for babies and toddlers. California Assemblymember Kevin McCarty advocated for the TK expansion and acknowledges the rates the state pays providers who serve low-income families are inadequate. They pay our workforce poverty wages, frankly. Some of the workers can easily go work in a fast food restaurant and make more money. The Senate and Assembly agreed on a budget deal last week that would add an increase in rates for child care providers to the governor's proposal to expand transitional kindergarten. We will not adopt a budget that doesn't adequately increase rates. That's, you know, a line that we're drawing in the sand. McCarty also says there's an opportunity for providers currently enrolling four-year-olds to serve more young children with new state funding. Fernandez with California Children's Academy says it's not that simple. You'd have to renovate the classroom, renovate the yard, install changing tables. That's the start of a long list. Fernandez says what she wants for her staff and other child care providers is to be recognized for the work they're already doing educating four-year-olds. Covering Early Childhood, I'm Mariana Dale.
The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Martinez. As part of our ongoing series called Pushed Out, we've been reporting on the link between homelessness and domestic violence. The leading reason women in L.A. County say they become unsheltered is intimate partner abuse. But it's not only physical violence that's an issue. Take Two's Julia Paskin reports. When we think about domestic or intimate partner abuse, the focus tends to be on violence alone. An abuser uses physical and emotional tactics to hurt a victim, but there's usually more to the story. It's really about control and power, and one easiest way to do that is to control resources. Amy Turk co-leads LA's Domestic Violence and Homeless Services Coalition. Abusers can control cash, bank accounts, and credit cards. That's what happened to Daisy, who wishes to go by a pseudonym. She fell in love with someone she met working at a retail company. When she got pregnant, he invited her to move in. But he began drinking excessively and spending most of his money on alcohol, leaving little for their expenses. Like the weekend, his money will be gone. You know, like his paycheck basically will be gone. Then he started being violent toward her. When I was seven or eight months pregnant, like I was going up the stairs and he pushed me. After the baby was born, he became more physically and emotionally abusive. When Daisy got pregnant with their second baby, he said he would step up and take care of the family, that she should stop working and they could live on his income alone. Without childcare, it seemed to make sense, so she quit. But he continued spending the money on alcohol, and she was completely dependent. He took control over everything, like debit cards, the bank accounts, or sometimes if he didn't want to pay the phone bill, like I wouldn't have phone The physical abuse escalated so much that the police got involved, but it put her in even more danger. If I hit you again, I'm going to make sure it's worth it, because I know I'll go to jail again. It was an impossible position. She had to leave, but how? Daisy was terrified she would end up in the hospital, or worse. I used to spend hours at night (laughs) trying to think how am I going to do it, because I didn't have any money. I didn't... (laughs) have any resources. Maricela Rios Faust from the domestic violence organization Human Options says women express this dilemma to her every day. I don't want to be in this unhealthy relationship and I also don't want to be homeless. And they're often put in a situation where they have to choose between being safe or risking homelessness. Fearing for her life, Daisy chose homelessness. One morning when her partner left for work, she escaped with her two young children. All I had with me was, you know, my, my daughter's diaper bag and a backpack for like two changes of clothes for each. 
and $10 on my wallet. And that's what I had to do. She'd heard about an emergency shelter for victims of domestic abuse. She was accepted there for 30 days and then managed to get into a transitional shelter, also for domestic violence survivors, and designed to help women get back on their feet. Daisy was so grateful, she crafted handmade thank you cards for shelter staff. But there was another obstacle. To get residents back to financial independence, the shelter required them to save a third of their income. But she had no work and didn't qualify for benefits because she had moved from El Salvador and was a sponsored resident. Only her daughters were eligible. They're giving me money for two people, but it's three of us. She still had to pay for shelter fees, food, and diapers. There wasn't enough left to save. To make a little money, Daisy started selling her handmade greeting cards to visitors and staff. That was my little extra income that I had at the shelter. Then she found out about Free From. That's a nonprofit that helps survivors recover from financial abuse. One way is by helping them become entrepreneurs and figuring out products to sell on their online gift shop. CEO Sonia Passi says this way, survivors can rebuild a financial future. It is exclusively selling products made by survivor entrepreneurs and paying survivors $28.85 to work at the store, creating wealth for survivors in two ways, as entrepreneurs and as employees. Daisy developed a whole line of handmade cards to sell online and started making money of her own. Then she moved up to store manager, and after two years, she earned enough to move her and her two daughters into their own place. She regularly meets with other survivors to share financial and business advice and get support from people who understand. We survivors are very resilient, and sometimes we are our own best resource. But Daisy acknowledges that it continues to be a long journey. Even after, like, years and a long time, it's, it's, you know, it's still hard. I'm Julia Paskin. Next in our series, Pushed Out, Take Two's Julia Paskin reports on how the system forces survivors into homelessness and the effort to stop that cycle. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And its food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about L.A. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm A. Martinez. All right, in case you missed it, this is the final week for your favorite public radio show, Take Two. 
I'll be heading to NPR's Morning Edition, and KPCC will be working on creating a new show all summer long. So, given my departure, my producer asked me to choose a few of my favorite segments. I did, and she chose to re-air this one from September 30th, 2016, during the last few days of Vin Scully's iconic career calling Dodger games. It's a segment that really demonstrates what we felt our mission was to you, our listeners, a show for Angelinos by Angelinos. Let's go. Just a few more hours of airtime in a broadcast career that has spanned 67 years. Ben Scully, legendary Dodger announcer, calls his final game on Sunday. And so I wanted to take some time to give you a little Scully history and some insight into him as a broadcaster and why I'd argue that he may well be the greatest play-by-play announcer of all time. Introductions. We've had all the pomp and circumstance. We've had all the fuss and feathers. But it's time. It's time for Dodger baseball. To understand what makes Vin Scully truly one of the greats, we need to go back for some historical context. If I pitch, can you catch? Will you hold the ball? Los Angeles in the late 1950s. The city was already the movie-making capital of the world, but it was changing, and changing quickly. Nowhere did the post-war boom boom more than in the City of Angels. There were more cars produced here than anywhere else outside of Detroit. Aerospace companies provided good, high-paying jobs for hundreds of thousands of workers. Real estate development exploded, and people started to migrate here for the nice homes, the beaches, the mountains, the sunshine. You know, a little slice of the American dream, West Coast style. But there was one thing missing, a big-time professional sports team. In those days, Major League Baseball was king. If you didn't have a team, you pretty much were considered a minor league town. Now, that irked a lot of folks in L.A. It was a hard right jab to their civic pride. Happily, the Brooklyn Dodgers wanted a taste of that good West Coast life, too. And in 1958, they decided to make the big move. But who would be the first point of contact between the Dodgers and their new city? Here's Vince Scully. Vince? Thank you, Jerry, and good evening, everybody. And despite the fact that I have just knocked a cup of coffee in my lap and a suit that's just out of the cleaners, it's great to be home. That was Vin in 1957, the year before the team moved. 20-something, golden-throated, red-headed announcer, born and raised in New York City, who ironically grew up a diehard Giants fan. But once he and the team made it out here, they fell in love with the town, and the town fell in love with them. It helped that the Dodgers were a top-flight club. The boys in blue won the World Series in three of the first eight years they were in Los Angeles. It also helped that they had legendary players such as Sandy Colfax and Maury Wills. And it helped that Vin was there to immortalize them. Sandy backs off, mops his fire, runs his left index finger along his fire, dries it off on his left pants leg. All the while, team just waiting. Listen to how descriptive he is, how without any visuals you know exactly what's going on, that Colfax was about to pitch a perfect game. Two and two to Harvey Keene, one strike away. Sandy into his windup, here's the pitch. Swung on and missed the perfect game. But to make the argument that he's the greatest of all time, we've got to fast forward to 1988, when no one expected much of the Dodgers. The team had come off back-to-back subpar seasons, but as April turned into May, the Dodgers were leading the division and pretty much stayed in first place the rest of the way. 
and with a roster full of players who pretty much no one considered superstars. The Dodgers were the clear underdogs when they faced the powerful and heavily favored New York Mets, a team with 100 wins and the second best record in the majors. Funny thing happened, though. They wound up beating the Mets to advance to the World Series. And now we're about ready, and the Dodgers take the field to start Game 1 of the 1988 World Series. I was an L.A. kid and a Dodger fan, and I remember all the talk. Well, it was a nice run. They got lucky. That's how the Cinderella story is going to end, though. You see, they were going up against the Oakland A's, a team with the best record in the majors. And the Dodgers had lost their best player, outfielder Kirk Gibson, who was all banged up and got pulled from the lineup from the opening game of the World Series. Now, to no one's surprise, things didn't start off well for L.A. Jose Canseco hit a grand slam early and gave the A's the lead. And in the bottom of the ninth, with a one-run lead, the A's brought in Dennis Eckersley, the best closer in the game to lock everything up. Now, for some reason, with two out and a runner on base, manager Tommy Lasorda decided to go for the Hail Mary. And look who's coming up. He called on the injured Gibson to grab a bat. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. If he hits the ball on the ground, I would imagine he would be running 50% to first base. So the Dodgers trying to catch lightning right now. The outfielder could barely walk, much less hit a baseball. Gibson was so banged up, he was not introduced. He did not come out onto the field before the game. And then... High fly ball into right field. She is gone! Gibson hit a home run so miraculous, so glorious, that I still get goosebumps just thinking about it. And it was in moments like these that Vin showed exactly why he's one of the greats. He let the moment breathe for over a minute, allowing the crowd to carry the action, stepping aside when other broadcasters may have felt the need to say something. And then in 12 words, he summed up an entire season. In a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. The Gibson call was amazing to hear as a broadcaster and as a fan, but there was one other moment that really meant the world to me as a young Latino kid in Los Angeles who was obsessed with the Dodgers. It's two years later. Fernando Valenzuela is in his last season as a Dodger. By then, he had pretty much done it all. Season after season of total Fernando mania from the fans. Two-time World Series champ, Rookie of the Year, Cy Young Award winner, multiple All-Star Game appearances. But... There was one thing on his baseball bucket list he hadn't done yet, and that's throw a no-hitter. Finally, on June 29th, 1990, he was almost there. Just two more outs, and he'd have it. Vin captured the moment in typical Scully fashion. Fernando ready in the strike two pitch. is hit back to the box, dribbling to second. Samuel on the bag, close to first double play. Fernando Valenzuela has pitched a no-hitter at 10.17 in the evening of June the 29th, 1990. If you have a sombrero, throw it to the sky. A simple acknowledgement to what Fernando meant to the Spanish-speaking community of Los Angeles, along with a sense of closure for Valenzuela's Dodger career. 
And to me, in that moment, hearing him sum up what my hero meant to us, well, it meant the world. That relationship with the audience is something that all broadcasters strive for. And when he leaves, the way we hear the game will never be the same. You see, Vin Scully worked all by himself, the last solo play-by-play man in baseball. The last guy who all alone could connect you on a personal level with well-told stories and stats sprinkled in between, keeping you engaged all the way through. I'll always remember what he said when the Dodgers named their press box after him. I was standing right there. He said he was happy to have his name on the room where the reporters worked because he had always seen himself as just that, a reporter telling the story of the game. Vin Scully, the eyes and ears of Los Angeles, telling a very long story to a city that will be grateful for a very long time. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.